Section 13 of Three Science Fiction Novellas by Lee Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1 of Shadrach the Lost It was dark in the caves under Mercury. It was hot, and there was no sound in them but the slow plodding of Trevor's heavy boots. Trevor had been wandering for a long time, lost in this labyrinth where no human being had ever gone before. And Trevor was an angry man. Through no fault or will of his own, he was about to die, and he was not ready to die. Moreover, it seemed a wicked thing to come to his final moment here in the stifling dark, buried under alien mountains as high as Everest. He wished now that he had stayed in the valley. Hunger and thirst would have done for him just the same, but at least he would have died in the open like a man, and not like a rat trapped in a drain. Yet there was not really much to choose between them as a decent place to die. A barren little hellhole the valley had been, even before the quake, with nothing to draw a man there except the hope of finding sunstones, one or two of which could transform a prospector into a plutocrat. Trevor had found no sunstones. The quake had brought down a whole mountain wall on his ship, leaving him with a pocket torch, a handful of food tablets, a canteen of water, and the scant clothing he stood in. He had looked at the naked rocks, and the little river frothing green with chemical poisons, and he had gone away into the tunnels, the ancient blowholes of a cooling planet, gambling that he might find a way out of the valleys. Mercury's twilight belt is cut into thousands of cliff-locked pockets, as a honeycomb is cut into cells. There is no way over the mountains, for the atmosphere is shallow, and the jagged peaks stand up into airless space. Trevor knew that only one more such pocket lay between him and the open plains. If he could get to and through that last pocket, he had thought. But he knew now that he was not going to make it. He was stripped to the skin already, in the terrible heat. When the weight of his minor boots became too much to drag, he shed them, padding on over the rough rock with bare feet. He had nothing left now but the torch. When the light went, his last hope went with it. After a while, it went. The utter blackness of the grave shut down. Trevor stood still, listening to the pulse of his own blood in the silence, looking at that which no man needs a light to see. Then he flung the torch away and stumbled on, driven to flight still by the terror which was greater than his weakness. Twice he struck against the twisting walls and fell and struggled up again. The third time he remained on his hands and knees and crawled. He crept on, a tiny creature entombed in the bowels of a planet. The boar grew smaller and smaller, tightening around him. From time to time he lost consciousness, and it became increasingly painful to struggle back to an awareness of the heat and the silence and the pressing rock. After one of these periods of oblivion he began to hear a dull, steady thunder. He could no longer crawl. The boar had shrunk to a mere crack, barely large enough for him to pass through worm-like on his belly. He sensed now a deep, shuddering vibration in the rock. It grew stronger, terrifying in that enclosed space. Steam slipped wraith-like into the smothering air. 
the roar and the vibration grew into an unendurable pitch. Trevor was near to strangling in the steam. He was afraid to go on, but there was no other way to go. Quite suddenly, his hands went out into nothingness. The rock at the lip of the bore must have been rotten with erosion. It gave under his weight and pitched him head first into a thundering rush of water that was blistering hot and going somewhere in a great hurry through the dark. After that, Trevor was not sure of anything. There was the scalding heat and the struggle to keep his head up and the terrible speed of the sub-Mercurian River racing to its destiny. He struck rocks several times, and once he held his breath for a whole eternity until the roof of the tunnel rose up again. He was only dimly aware of a long sliding fall downward through a sudden brightness. It was much cooler. He splashed feebly, because his brain had not told his body to stop, and the water did not fight him. His feet and hands struck solid bottom. He floundered on, and presently the water was gone. He made one attempt to rise. After that, he lay still. The great mountains leaned away from the sun. Night came, and with it a storm and rain. Trevor did not know it. He slept, and when he woke, the savage dawn was making the high cliffs flame with white light. Something was screaming above his head. Aching and leaden still with exhaustion, he roused up and looked about him. He sat on a beach of pale gray sand. At his feet were the shallows of a gray-green lake that filled a stony basin some half-mile in breadth. To his left, the underground river poured out of the cliff face, spreading into a wide, rifling fan of foam. Off to his right, the water spilled over the rim of the basin to become a river again somewhere below and beyond the rim. Veiled in mist and the shadow of a mountain wall was a valley. Behind him, crowding into the edge of the sand, were trees and ferns and flowers, alien in shape and color, but triumphantly alive. And from what he could see of it, the broad valley was green and riotous with growth. The water was pure, the air had a good smell, and it came to Trevor that he had made it. He was going to live a little while longer, after all. Forgetting his weariness, he sprang up, and the thing that had hissed and screamed above him swooped down and passed the clawed tip of a leathery wing so close to his face that it nearly gashed him. He stumbled backward, crying out loud, and the creature rose in a soaring spiral and swooped again. Trevor saw a sort of flying lizard, jet black except for a saffron belly. He raised his arms to ward it off, but it did not attack him. And as it swept by, he saw something that awoke in him amazement, greed, and a peculiarly unpleasant chill of fear. Around its neck, the lizard thing wore a golden collar, and set into the scaly flesh of its head, into the bone itself, it seemed, was a sunstone. There was no mistaking that small, vicious flash of radiance. Trevor had dreamed of sunstones too long to be misled. He watched the creature rise again into the steamy sky and shivered, wondering who, or what, had set that priceless thing into the skull of a flying lizard, and why. It was the why that bothered him the most. Sunstones are not mere adornments for wealthy ladies. 
They are rare, radioactive crystals, having a half-life one-third greater than radium, and are used exclusively in the construction of delicate electronic devices dealing with frequencies above the first octave. Most of that relatively unexplored superspectrum was still a mystery, and the strangely jeweled and collared creature was circling above him filled Trevor with a vast unease. It was not hunting. It did not wish to kill him. But it made no move to go away. From far down the valley, muted by distance to a solemn bell note that rolled between the cliffs, Trevor heard the booming of a great song. A sudden desire for concealment set him in among the trees. He worked his way along the shore of the lake. Looking up through the branches, he saw the black wings lift and turn, following him. The lizard was watching him with its bright, sharp eyes. It noted the path of his movements through the ferns and flowers, as a hawk watches a rabbit. He reached the lip of the basin where the water poured over a cataract several hundred feet high. Climbing around the shoulder of a rocky bastion, Trevor had his first clear look at the valley. Much of it was still vague with mist, but it was broad and deep, with a sweep of level plain and clumps of forest, locked tight between the barrier mountains. And as he made out other details, Trevor's astonishment grew out of all measure. The land was under cultivation. There were clusters of thatched huts among the fields, and in the distance was a rock-built city immense and unmistakable in the burning haze of dawn. Trevor crouched there, staring, and the winged lizard swung in lazy circles, watching, waiting, while he tried to think. A fertile valley such as this was rare enough in itself, but to find fields and a city was beyond belief. He had seen the aboriginal tribes that haunt some of the cliff-locked worlds of the twilight belt, Subhuman peoples who live precariously among the bitter rocks and boiling springs, hunting the great lizards for food. None of this was ever built by them. Unless, in this environment, they had advanced beyond the age of stone. The gong sounded again its deep, challenging note. Trevor saw the tiny figures of mounted men, no larger than ants at that distance, come down from the city and ride out across the plain. Relief and joy supplanted speculation in Trevor's mind. He was battered and starving, lost on an alien world, and anything remotely approaching the human and the civilized was better luck than he could have dreamed or prayed for. Besides, there were sunstones in this place. He looked hungrily at the head of the circling watcher, and then began to scramble down the broken outer face of the bastion. The black wing slipped silently after him down the sky. About a hundred feet above the valley floor he came to an overhang. There was no way past it but to jump. He clung to a bush and let himself down as far as he could, and then dropped some four or five yards to a slope of springy turf. The fall knocked the wind out of him and as he lay gasping, a chill of doubt crept into his mind. He could see the land quite clearly now, the pattern of the fields, the far-off city. Except for the group of riders, nothing stirred. The fields, the plain were empty of life, 
the little village is still as death. And he saw, swinging lazily above a belt of trees by the river, a second black-winged shadow, watching. The trees were not far away. The riders were coming toward them and him. It seemed to Trevor now that the men were perhaps a party of hunters, but there was something alarming about the utter disappearance of all other life. It was as though the gong had been a warning for all to take cover while the hunt was abroad. The sharp-eyed lizards were the hounds that went before to find and flush the game. Glancing up at the ominous sentinel above his own head, Trevor had a great desire to see what the quarry was that hid in the belt of trees. There was no way back to the partial security of the lake basin. The overhang cut him off from that. The futility of trying to hide was apparent, but nevertheless he wormed in among some crimson ferns. The city was at his left. To the right, the fertile plain washed out into a badland of lava and shattered rock, which narrowed and vanished around a shoulder of purple basalt. This defile was still in deep shadow. The riders were still far away. He saw them splash across a ford, toy figures making little bursts of spray. The watcher above the trees darted suddenly downward. The quarry was breaking cover. Trevor's suspicions crystallized into an ugly certainty. Horror-struck, he watched the bronzed, half-naked figure of a girl emerge from the brilliant undergrowth and run like an antelope toward the badland. The flying lizard rose, swooped, and struck. The girl flung herself aside. She carried a length of sapling bound with great thorns, and she lashed out with it at the black brute, grazed it, and ran on. The lizard circled and came at her again from behind. She turned. There was a moment of vicious confusion, in which the leathery wings enveloped her in a kind of dreadful cloak, and then she was running again, but less swiftly, and Trevor could see the redness of blood on her body. And again the flying demon came. The thing was trying to hurt her, turn her back toward the huntsman. But she would not be turned. She beat with her club at the lizard, and ran, and fell, and ran again. And Trevor knew that she was beaten. The brute would have the life out of her before she reached the rocks. Every dictate of prudence told Trevor to stay out of this. Whatever was going on was obviously the custom of the country, and none of his business. All he wanted was to get hold of one of these sunstones and then find a way out of this valley. That was going to be trouble enough without taking on any more. But Prudence was swept away in the fury that rose in him as he saw the hawk swoop down again, with its claws outspread and hungry for the girl's tormented flesh. He sprang up, shouting for her to fight, to hang on, and went running full speed down the slope toward her. She turned upon him a face of such wild, fierce beauty as he had never seen, the eyes dark and startled and full of a terrible determination. Then she screamed at him in his own tongue, Look out! He had forgotten his own nemesis. Black wings, claws, and the lash of a scaly tail striking like a whip, and Trevor went down, rolling over and staining the turf red as he rolled. 
From far off he heard the voice as of the huntsman, shrill and strident, lifted in a wild halloo. End of section 13